Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 1 John as we continue through chapter 4. We'll look together this morning at verses 13 through 18. John writes, as we have come to be familiar with, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Partly because this falls in a large run-on section, and if you look at probably in your copy of the text of Scripture, it probably looks like a big run-on section, and probably the last chapter does too. Uh, Partly because it's in this big run-on section, and partly because I can't preach the whole section at once, or we'd be here all day, or everyone would be sleeping. Uh, And partly because this passage does seem to lack a singular theme, despite building towards, I think, a climax of sorts, I've chosen not to distill a main point. It seems to me that that would be very contrived. It would be a very long run-on sentence that no one would remember. It would not be helpful. And my deepest fear is that people don't remember my main points anyways, even when I do try to make them short Uh, And so certainly trying to distill one singular main point of this section, I just don't think it's going to happen, and so I'm not going to try. However, if it has been lost on you up until this point, going through this letter, perhaps now is as good a time as any to clarify or point out the repetition in 1 John. The repetition. You likely even heard that, felt that in the reading. The section itself contains repetition. The whole letter contains repetition. And and in fact, this section repeats most of, many of at least, the themes that we've already seen in 1 John. Loving one another. God being love. Jesus being sent as the Savior. Abiding. The Spirit. It's like, oh wow. It's like we've... We've heard about all these things. Now, it is one thing to read a repetitious letter as a first century audience. It's quite another to preach a repetitious letter to the same group of people every week. I would be lying if there were times when preparing some of these sermons, I've thought, I hope that they forgot the sermon from two weeks ago. Because a lot of this same stuff shows back up here and I don't want people getting tired of it. But here's the thing. In the providence of God, John wrote this repetitious circular letter 
to this different audiences, this community. And in that exact same providence, we find ourselves here at a different point of the redemptive timeline going through the exact same letter. It is not an accident of fortune that these themes keep staring us in the face in this cultural moment, in your family moment, in our church moment, in your professional moment, whatever the case may be. Repetition is perhaps the greatest indicator of emphasis within the New Testament. Clearly these things are being emphasized. Clearly they're being emphasized for us here in, on November 12th for a very specific reason. What is that reason? Why do we keep hearing these same themes now? How is this a timely word? I leave that for you to discern. But having said that, John gives us another, by this we know. By this we know. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of the Spirit. Now, like we discussed back in chapter 3, 24 and in 2, 20, the Spirit plays an extremely important role in confirming our faith, not in the abstract, okay? Not so much a, a, a feeling that we're waiting on, but for John, the Spirit plays an instrumental role in confirming our faith because it is the Spirit who testifies and justifies, confirms our deep-seated conviction that Jesus is the Messiah who has come in the flesh. The people who have gone out from them claim to have the Spirit too. And so if claiming to have the Spirit boils down to having a certain feeling, there isn't going to be a lot of confidence here. But if having the Spirit boils down to being confirmed in the deep-seated conviction that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and that He has come, then all of a sudden we have some reasons for confidence. By this we can know. Not by I feel this or I think this, but because the Spirit testifies to me that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He says, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. So here, John's language is reminiscent of the prologue, where he talks about himself and others as eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. And then he reminds us the full scope of Christ coming in the flesh. Okay? God did not become incarnate to just get, you know, become God in a bod and get an extra set of properties or something. He came on a rescue mission. He came on a mission to deliver. And so to say that the Messiah has come, that's loaded. It means more than merely God took on flesh. He took on flesh within the context of a larger purpose that he accomplished. It says that he is the savior of the world. He sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Now, if you recall back in chapter 2, verse 2, we hear very similar language. That He is the propitiation not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And what I am suggesting here, just like I suggested then, is not that John is saying, unlike contrary to our universalist friends, um, that every single person has Christ as their Savior and are walking in the light. Okay? Or that everyone eventually will have Jesus as Savior. I don't think that's what John's saying at all. Instead, John is making a, a, a statement about the exclusivity 
of the saving work of Christ. It's a statement of, about the exclusivity of the gospel. And uh, so, so let me reuse the illustration I used last time that I'm hoping everyone forgot. And so, you know, suppose I say Joe Biden is the president of the United States of America. The fact that someone moans or groans after I say that, the fact that someone does not like Joe Biden, did not vote for Joe Biden, thought the election was shady, all that's irrelevant. Because guess what? He's the president. That's it. He's the president. And the person who thinks that there's another president who can carry out presidential duties, that person's just mistaken. Okay, There isn't another president. Joe Biden is a president, and he's the only one. He is the president. Similarly, God has created a world that has been broken by sin and rebellion. And he has appointed a savior, his son, who has come in the flesh to be the savior of the world God made. He's the only one. He is the only Savior on offer. But not a Savior anywhere else. Acts 4. Remember what Peter says? There is no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. By which we must be saved. No one comes to God but through Christ. And thankfully, this saving is not distant It's not transactional. It's not merely getting out of a line, going to hell. Getting into a line, going to heaven. No, no, no. It's far, far better than that. Whoever confesses, verse 15, that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. There is a mutual abiding that happens between us in the God of the universe. I don't know exactly how to explain it, but if you've been around for the Sunday School series, I'm saying that there's something very robust here going on. I don't know how, I don't know, I can't totally get my hands around it, and it is a bit mysterious. But God is with and in us. He is with and in us, and we are abiding in, remaining in God. We are commanded to do so, yes, but there is also a sense in which there just is a reality that we are. He says that anyone who confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, that this is the case for him, this mutual indwelling. Not that the historical Jesus existed. That's definitely not it. Uh, Not that he worked miracles. Not that he was a great teacher. But that he was exactly who he claimed to be. The son of God. Which is, we repeat it so much, but I mean, brothers and sisters, that, that is an amazing and a bizarre claim. If you're someone walking around in the first century, someone claims, I am the only God, the Son of God. That is the center of the Christian faith, that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And John says the person who can confess that truly, that person abides in God and God abides in him. In him. 
He goes on. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It's a bit of a mouthful to read. You can certainly feel the repetition in verses like that, but it's fairly straightforward once we understand the pieces here. The so refers to what has just been said, but particularly verses 14 and 15. So you can read this as, and so. Because of what was just said, and so. What was just said, to just to briefly refresh, was that Christ has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world, and that those who confess the Son abide in God, and, abide, and God abides in them. And so, verse 16, we have come to know and believe the love. That's how we have come to know and believe the love, because of what He just said. We have come to know and believe God's love because of how He has acted and how He abides with us, is what John is saying. And then he repeats what he did back in verse 8, that God is love. And that's the thing that kind of completes the circuit here, the circuit of explanation with this abiding language that just gets repeated so much here. This time it's saying that those who abide in love have God abiding in them, which is, again, an odd thing to, to say. I mean, either we would generally th expect, if we are on, in, in this text, we would have expected those who have, abide in God have God abide in them. Yes, we've already we've seen that, but now it's those who abide in love, God abides in them. How does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because God is love, John says. So if you want to kind of zoom out, here's how I would summarize the verse. Here's be my paraphrase for you if you're trying to wrap your mind around this verse. He's saying that we can know the love God has for us because of how He's acted for us and how He remains in us so that it can be said of those who abide in love that they have the God of love in them. Okay? Let me just say that one more time. John's saying that we can know the love God has for us by how He has acted on our behalf and how He abides and remains in us so that it can be said of those who abide in love that they have the God of love abiding in them. That's the point. That's the point. And it's by this abiding love such that God abides in us that John returns to the perfected language of verse 12. He returns to the perfected language of verse 12. By this, what we just read, is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Now, just like in verse 12, the perfected language does not refer to something that was broken or messed up, and then you and I stepped in to save God from His broken love or fixed it up or anything like that. It's the Greek teleao. It is this something's fullness or its completion or bringing something to its intended end. And that is what we do. God's love is not supposed to just stop with us as the finish line. It is, you might say, the pit stop. And then our love is to pour forth for others. So to, to risk a sports analogy in an effort at illustration, um, think of a team who is, you know, 6-0. Oh, six, that's six wins and zero losses. 
halfway through a season. There's a huge difference between a 6-0 and record and a perfect season. And here's the thing. There's nothing that's, that's not because there's something wrong with the first half of the season. Haven't lost a game. Won them all. But a perfect season and a 6-0 and team, two different things. Not because something was deficient, because it's not yet complete. There's something not yet complete. The whole season is going somewhere. It's aiming at a certain kind of thing. It's not aiming at 6-0. and Nothing wrong with 6-0, and but that's not where it's aiming. That's not where it's headed. It's aiming towards a kind of completion, a championship of some kind, a culmination of a flawless season. And so similarly, God's love reaches its intended end, its fullness when we abide in love and God's love in us produces love for one another. And now John says that the particular manner of love being perfected brought to completion in us, has an important residual effect. And that is, it causes us to have confidence in the judgment. This perfected love gives us confidence in the judgment. And then we get a very cryptic explanatory phrase. A very strange phrase in the second half of verse 17. By this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment Because as He is, so also are we in this world. The Greek literally reads, Because just as that one is, we also are in this world. What on earth does that mean? How on earth does that explain why we are to have confidence in the judgment as it relates to love. couple of views. I'm just going to present three of them briefly so you kind of understand the landscape. The first view here, which is almost impossible to even make sense of given how the ESV is translated, if you're not looking at the Greek, is saying that Christ, what it's talking about, it's talking about Christ. And it's saying that Christ had a certain characteristic on earth and that he, in, while He was in this world, And that he retained that characteristic when he went to heaven so that he can still be an example for believers. That's what it's talking about. So the he is referencing Christ. It's talking about something that he had in the world as a pattern. He still has as a pattern. So he is an example in his character, his confidence um, for believers. I think there are a lot of things wrong with this suggestion. I almost think it's totally incoherent. But let me just say the thing that I think is the dagger in the heart of this one is that there's nothing in this particular verse that is pointing back to the past. The focus seems to be on what he is. He is, of course, the ESV's rendering of that one. He is, not he was. It's not saying God, Christ used to be something and we're to do that thing. There are other places in Scripture that say that, okay? But that's not what it says here. It says, as He is, so we are in this world. This one for me, because of that, is just kind of dead on arrival. Because it's talking about something in Christ's past, you might say, as opposed to something that's primarily a present reality. 
Then the second one is far better, far an improvement here. It's that belief, it takes up the children of God theme in 1 John. And it says, here's what's being said here. It's saying believers are children of God just as Christ is the Son of God. And because Christ is the judge, believers don't have to fear judgment. Okay? This is a much, much better explanation. It avoids the difficulty of the first criticism because while Christ, Christ was the Son of God, importantly, He is and continues to be the Son of God. It, it draws this neat link between God, uh, the Son, and then us being sons and daughters of God, children of God, 1 John 3, 1. Um, and it's, they're both in the present tense. So this is a much better explanation. The problem with this one is does doesn't have anything to say about how perfected love in the first part of the verse has anything to do with our confidence. It leaves it totally out. It has everything to do simply with being children of God. Now you could, you could say, well, but and, and then therefore it stands to reason that we are loved or something like that. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying that because God's love is perfected in us as we love others, we therefore have confidence to stand in the judgment because, and we're getting an explanatory. How does our perfected love that gives us confidence in the judgment, uh, how does that work? And it, do, it just kind of cuts it out. Um, furthermore, you might think that in John's language, it isn't Christ who's the judge. Not that that's theologically wrong necessarily, but John 8.50 says, says this, Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, Jesus is talking, and he is the judge. He is the judge. Um, and so I, I, this, this is my kind of even day of the week interpretation. My odd day of the week understanding here, which is, of course, my view, because there's more odd days, right, um, is, is, a, is a blending of two similar interpretations that are nevertheless distinct from the two we just mentioned. And, 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 and it's, I understand the verse to be saying something like this, is that the posture of believers toward God should reflect the posture of the Son toward God as it was on earth, but also as it is continually in heaven. This is why we read two sections from the farewell discourse, and we talked about the Son being in the Father, and the Father being in the Son, and this kind of love that unites and that is within in some way that we can't understand. I think that's what's going on here. I think that is the 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 best, um, well, it represents my best effort to say what's going on here. So here would be my paraphrase of the verse. In this world, we can have confidence in approaching the judgment because as the Son is in the Father's love, so are we as our love for one another completes His love. Okay? In this world, we can have confidence in approaching the judgment because as the Son is in the Father's love, so are we. This is that abiding language that we just heard about. As we love one another, and it completes love. So we have being in God, uh, like the Son, is the ultimate reason for our confidence. But loving one another is how we have knowledge that we are in God in the first place. Being in God, like the Son, and God in us, is our ultimate foundation for confidence, 
But loving one another is the reason we have in John's language here for thinking that we're in God in the first place. And if we are, then we can have ultimate confidence before the judge. That's what John seems to be saying in an admittedly very difficult, very difficult verse. But he doubles down on it in verse 18, another verse that many, many people have heard. It is beautiful in one sense. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not yet been perfected in love. John's, John's saying that when God's love for us and in us has grown to full maturity, it's impossible to fear judgment before Him. It's incompatible with the matured love of God in us. It's, it, it doesn't even conceptually make sense, John's saying. Right? So like imagine a single guy uh, in college going to a sorority fraternity mixer or something, and uh, the single man, he's, he's, he's concerned that he might not be considered a bachelor when he shows up to the party. They might not consider him a bachelor. You might think that someone who is a single man worried about whether or not he qualifies as a bachelor doesn't exactly understand the concepts involved or he wouldn't have the question to begin with. You might think that he has a malformed understanding of things. And in fact, he would. John is saying that God's love for us, has re when it has reached its intended end, when it comes to full maturity, it doesn't just result in us loving others. It has this effect of us. There, there's no conceptual space left to fear God, to fear the judgment of God. The nature of God's love and it being perfected in us casts out fear. Let me give you an illustration. For some people, that's a difficult one to land. So let me give you, a, hopefully, an illustration that will help. Um, I tell my, I seem to be using my children in my illustrations here recently, but hopefully one day they'll forget, they'll forget, forgive me. But I tell my son, Will, that I love him all the time. Uh, I tell him that I am proud of him. All the time. I write notes in his lunchbox that I pack every day. Tell him that I'm pumped to be his dad. I mean, I want him to know that. And you might find this hard to believe, but sometimes I have to get on to him. Because, uh, you know, he doesn't. He's not listening. He's not listening to what I'm saying. And, and I noticed something. I noticed a pattern there was a pattern that developed where when I would get on to him, give some kind of form of correction, perhaps some kind of discipline, he would come and tell me that he loves me. And of course, I would tell him, you know, well, I love you too, son. But I, but I caught him on. I was like, why is this always following this? So I pulled him aside on one such occasion. And I said, do you come and tell me that you love me? Because you don't feel like I love you because of the correction that just happened. And you and you say you love me because you want me to hear you want you want to hear me say it back to you. And he said, Yeah. And I said, You know what, son? 
Next time, you don't have to do that. You can just come to me and say, Daddy, I need to hear you say that you love me. And I said, I promise I will affirm that over and over and over. You see, my love for my son is not yet perfected in him. He doesn't quite understand it, the fullness of it. In fact, we were discussing the sermon illustration from last Sunday, and he said, shockingly, you would give yourself up for me? I said, well, yeah, of course. I was like, whoa. He understands that I love him, but, but his understanding hasn't reached a kind of maturity that can survive, you might say, correction without feeling, oh no, have I now lost the love and now I need to do things to get back into the love. Perfect love, completed love, when it's come to its fullness, when it's grasped, when it's absorbed, when it's taken in, casts out fear of God. Casts out fear. If we find ourselves fearing God's posture towards us, we are simply not there yet in terms of understanding and grasping the nature of His love for us. If we find ourselves as children of God fear, with a fearful posture before God, we have not quite understood the nature and the extravagance of His love for us. It is a love that assures. It is a love that brings confidence. And that is my singular point of application. Love that assures. When we talk about the assurance of the believer, we are talking about something that is different than the perseverance of the saints. People often confuse the two. They're not the same. Perseverance of the saints or eternal security is a doctrine about what happens to be the case. It describes an objective reality. Namely, if someone has truly repented and believed the gospel, then they are saved, will always be saved, will be raised up on the last day. Okay? If someone is justified, they will be glorified, to use the language of the chain there in Romans chapter 8. That's the doctrine of eternal security, perseverance. When we talk of the assurance of the believer, we are talking about person, the personal confidence someone has that they are in Christ, that they are right with God, and therefore don't have a reason to fear. So it should be pointed out that a believer can, someone can believe in the doctrine of eternal security that if someone is saved, they will endure and yet still struggle with assurance because they're wondering if they're saved at all or ever was. They say things like, well, how, I asked Jesus into my heart this many times. Did it take? I'm not sure. They read Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do mighty works in your name to cast out demons and all the rest of it? He says, I never knew you. So this is where this comes in. It's like, well, I'm not so sure. I'm self-deceived, perhaps. 
And there are people who can be genuine, blood-bought Christians who simply struggle with assurance for a variety of reasons. So that's what I want to briefly mention. Because John is saying something here that is not supposed to simply say, if you're in, you're always in. It is supposed to be giving us something that allows us to have confidence in the judgment. To stand without fear because perfect love casts out fear. If love is perfected in us, we don't have that. So we're going to fear, excuse me, if love is not perfected in us, we're not going to understand it. Just like my son thinks it's something that he just he's not quite there yet in grasping the nature of my love for him. And so he fears that things might have changed because of what has happened. Both the Canons of Dort and the Westminster Confession of Faith give three reasons, and they're giving three reasons because it's the Bible gives essentially three categorical reasons for assurance for personal confidence before God. And I want to walk through those three things very briefly. The first source or form of assurance before God, such that we do not have fear before Him, is faith in the promises of God. Having faith in the promises of God. This is the first level where doubt can break in. This is the first tier. I'm not sure I trust God to fulfill His promises in me as a child of God. And in this, if this is you, you need, to, you need to ask yourself, why? Why exactly? And at this level, you're going to get two answers within your own heart from other people. They're kind of two primary hurdles. One is a low view of Scripture. A low view of the Bible. There are scores of people who struggle with assurance because their doctrine of feelings is better developed than their doctrine of the Word. Why is that? If you have a low view of the Word, you understand the things that God says, but you don't have a lot of confidence that they're going to happen or that they are true. If that's the case, you're definitely not going to have assurance. You're definitely not going to have assurance. If you have a low view of the Word of God, because it's the Word of God that contains the promises of God. So that's one level. Someone can go wonky right here. I, I have a low view of God's Word. My doctrine of the Word is lame. Therefore, I struggle with assurance. Of course you're going to struggle with assurance. You have a low view of the Word. The second tier is this, that someone's understanding of God is distorted because of their own experiences with their father, with their authority figures, broken promises, manipulation, not being there for you, potentially abuse. And all those things get projected onto God. I was talking with a young man just within the last week who said, everyone knows that you learn about God by your parents. And I told him, I was like, yeah, as a pastor, I can tell you, that doesn't work very well for many people. I hope people model grace and charity, and I want to be the best example to my family, but I want my son to learn about God, not through by looking at me and thinking that I'm God, or that He has to be justified in my sight, but by understanding God as God has revealed Himself in the Word, and understand me to be an example serving God. 
This person says, I read these promises of God, and I believe they're true, but the hermeneutic that gets to my heart is the absentee parenting and the manipulation and the abuse of authority and all the rest of it. And it doesn't give me confidence. So when they read the promises of God, it's like trying to convince a claustrophobic person the elevator is safe. You know what? Every claustrophobic person I've talked to, they actually do believe when you walk them through it. They're like, I get it. Like, I get the science. I, I totally get it. And guess what? They take the stairs. They do. It's not that they don't understand the facts. It's not that they don't understand the facts. Like, they get it. They won't disagree with you. They affirm it. But that's, that doesn't inform how they live life. They're taking the stairs. And for someone who has some of those things in their past, they can agree with all the things and all the promises, and they are still going to take a different path, and it's not going to be one that leads to assurance. So if that's you, I, I want to ask you a question. Which one of these describes you, perhaps both? And what's one small step that you can take to move forward here so that love can be perfected in you and fear can be cast out? That's first tier. Second tier is that assurance, after the promises of God declared in Scripture, assurance comes from the testimony of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In this case, doubt starts logically prior to the last step. In the last step, it says, I'm a child, but I doubt what the Word says for a variety of reasons that we discussed. This one says, I'm not sure I'm a child at all. Not sure if I've ever been. Again, maybe I'm like the folks in Matthew 7 who will be shocked in that day. Man, those people really are. There are going to be scores and scores of people who genuinely believe that they have followed Jesus when in fact they have not. This is again where John is so helpful. This is again where John is so helpful because he talks about the Spirit in the most specific way in terms of its testimony in our life and confirming knowledge of God for us. It is the Spirit who does not simply just give some kind of internal feeling. And I'm not saying there is no kind of internal feeling like that. I think you see something like that in Romans chapter 8, bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God. But in 1 John, the Spirit is, confirms our deep-seated conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. That's very specific. And so let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus came? Do you believe that He was God the Son incarnate? Do you believe that He was fully God and fully man? Do you believe that He died an atoning death and that He rose from the dead in victory over sin and death? Can you confess from the deepest part of your heart that Jesus is Lord? And if you can answer those questions, and notice that caveat in the last one, from the deepest part of your heart, if you can genuinely say, yes, that, what you just said, yes, then you need to take heart. Because at least right here in John, only children of God can do those things. 
Only children of God can believe those things in that kind of way, confess those things in that kind of a way. And the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that Christ is the risen Savior who has come in the flesh. The final thing is assurance from clear conscience and good works. You know, there's a controversy about this in some circles. Uh, there is a uh, local Reformed Baptist pastor who wanted to challenge this idea. Why? Why would we want to challenge the idea of a clear conscience? I mean, I've repented of sin, so I can be purified, and I'm walking in obedience. And his answer was this. If you tell people to look at fruit in their lives as evidence of believers, you're just going to lead them to doubt. You're just going to lead them to doubt. That's what he said. Let me just say, first of all, that that has a lot of tension with what John just John says in his book uh, letter over and over and over. By this we know. Go back and look at how many by this we knows having to do with loving one another, meeting needs, obeying the commands of God. By this we know. By this we know. By this we know. It sure seems like John's wants us to know something and give us some ways to know. And a lot of them have to do with loving confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, loving one another as He commands, keeping His commands, sure seems like that's there. But the question the pastor would say, and, and did in fact say, how many works? You're just going to cause someone to despair. It's a misguided question. This brother's misguided. You know the theological answer to that question? One. That's the theological answer. One. One spirit-wrought work. One tiny little grape. One. Because without the Spirit and without the new birth and being born of God, as John has said, that's not possible. That's the theological answer. Of course, it's not supposed to be a theological question. It's supposed to be a practical question of assurance. But... And so the answer that leads, the way to think about this that leads to assurance instead of a fruit-counting mission has already been laid out by John. And that is, is someone's life characterized by a spirit of lawlessness that leads to shameless sin or by a spirit of godliness that leads to repentance in Christ seeking to walk in the light and obey God's commands? When you introspect on this tier toward the end of seeking personal assurance, this isn't like answering problems of vagueness in philosophy. In metaphysics, problems of vagueness are very difficult. How many grains of sand do I have to have in order to have a pile? If I can't articulate that, are there such things as piles or sand or anything? You're just like, well, I don't know. One grain clearly isn't. A 10 billion clearly is a pile, and if I keep taking one away, somewhere in the middle it gets unclear. That's not like this. This isn't asking about how many fruits are in your basket. This is asking about, are you someone who is pursuing fruit? This is about pattern. This is about lifestyle. This is about someone who is repenting and believing the gospel. It's not about fruit count. It's not about comparing your fruit to anyone else's either. There are people in this room and, and not everyone is equally fruitful. And that's okay. Everyone is continuing on in their journey towards Jesus Christ and having the love of God perfected in them as that love spills out for one another. Let me just close with an example 
um, from the book of Exodus. From the book of Exodus. I want you to imagine that you were in one of those houses that had the blood of the lamb on your doorpost on that dreadful night. And I want you to imagine you're a fly on the wall and there's two people in that room. One person is so confident. They have utter confidence that the angel of death is going to pass over and no harm will befall anyone in the, in the room, in their house, that is to say. You see someone else on the other side of the room and they're going, oh, oh it's about to happen. I'm not so sure. Everyone hold on. Now here's a question. Which one of those two people were more passed over? We're more saved. We're more safe. And the answer is, it's a trick question because both of them were equally safe. Because what mattered was not the confidence of the person in the house. What mattered was the blood on the door. And so it is entirely possible for you to have a weaker faith and yet be equally secure as people who seem to have no doubt ever And as the love of God continues to be perfected in you, it will continue to cast out fear because that's what perfect love does. Pray that we would rest assured in these things, that this would comfort our hearts so that we would not fear, so we know that we, know that we will stand in the judgment. Let's pray. God, we are thankful not just for salvation, but for confidence in it. Confidence that can give our souls rest and shape our lives. We pray that whether it's the promises of God, the Holy Spirit, looking at fruit and transformation in our lives, that you would give us confidence and that you would work to perfect love in us. That we would love one another as a result and have confidence before you.